0: I'm a Dominican father, belonging to the order of preachers, and I'm very happy to be on this Eternal Word program discussing with you the question of moral theology. I teach at Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, and for many years have dealt with moral theology, and in this series I'm trying to present to you thoughts about a problem that seems to me very pertinent at the present time. And that is how our Catholic moral thinking, our moral theology, is rooted in the Word of God. If it's not rooted in the Word of God, if it's simply laws and regulations made up by human beings, then it's hardly a guide for us to eternal life with God. But if it's based on God's own word, then it is a safe and sure guide. In the first lectures, the first four lectures of this series, I tried to show that although in the scriptures we have a historical development of God's revelation, and that revelation in the Old Testament is conditioned by certain historical circumstances of the Jewish people. And although in the New Testament also, we have a gradual unfolding of God's revelation, which is complete at the end of the New Testament period. And yet that development goes on in the church, not a new revelation, because revelation is entirely contained in Jesus Christ himself, but a a deeper and deeper understanding of that revelation, an understanding that is occasionally obscured by controversies and doubts, but which is constantly being renewed. I tried to show that in the first four lectures, that that is rooted in the Word of God and is guided by the Holy Spirit. There is an element in it, therefore, which is permanent and enduring, And there's another element which is historical. The important thing, of course, is to be able to distinguish between those two things, but we're not left in the void with that because God has given us in the church, through the authority of the Holy Father and the bishops, a sure way of interpreting the Word of God and distinguishing between those things which are permanent and those things which are variable and changing. Now in the second half of this series, we come to actually ask about what is the content of that permanent teaching? What is it that must form the basis of the life of any Christian living in any country in any culture at any time? In one of the earlier lectures, I indicated what that is. St. Paul tells us that there are three things, faith, hope, and love, and these abide. These last, faith, hope, and love. Theologians call those the theological virtues. They're called theological because they relate us directly to God through faith, hope, and charity, we touch God. And I emphasize that according to the spiritual writers like St. John of the Cross, even in heaven, we will not be closer to God than we are here on earth through faith, hope, and charity. The only difference between the heaven and earth in that respect, is the difference between seeing clearly and here, touching God, as it were, in the dark. We touch him in the dark, but we really touch him. He really is there. So in this lecture, I want to talk about the first of these theological virtues, the virtue of faith. St. Paul says to us that without faith, No one can please God. Faith is the bedrock on which the Christian life is built. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks about building our house not on sand, which shifts, but on rock. And that rock is faith. Faith is the rock on which the edifice of the Christian life is constructed. Faith existed in the Old Testament, but it was not quite the same as New Testament faith. In the Old Testament, the great figure of faith and the story that brings to us what faith is all about is the story of Abraham. Abraham lived in a pagan country. God called him, and Abraham responded with faith. He didn't know where God was leading him. He wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. Around him were worship of other gods, the gods and idols of the pagans. But Abraham, through faith, knew the true God, and he believed God's promises, and he followed God's promises. God led him all the way to the Holy Land. But even there, his faith was tested in many ways. And the supreme test of Abraham's faith was that God said to him, take your son Isaac and go up the mountain and offer your son. Now, Abraham's whole future depended on God's promise that his descendants would possess the Holy Land. And here God was asking of him his one son on whom all of his hopes depended. And yet Abraham did not hesitate. If God asks it, I will give it to God. And so he prepared to sacrifice his own son. And yet of course, God did not intend to bring that about God gave him a substitute, a ram caught in a bush that he could sacrifice in the place of his son. And in that way, he taught Abraham and his descendants that God does not want human sacrifice like the pagans asked for. What God wants is obedience, trust, confidence that God's promise will be fulfilled. And so Old Testament faith is above all a faith that responds to a promise from God and looks forward to a reality which is not yet here. It's a hope for something which is not yet realized, but which we are confident will be realized. That faith is found in many other people in the Old Testament. And if you would like to look for a summary of the Old Testament, I suggest you look at the book of Sirach. That book is one of the books of the Old Testament, which is not found in Protestant Bibles, sometimes in an appendix perhaps, but which really is a part of the sacred scriptures. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament and it is representative of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. I said in a previous lecture that the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is drawn from earthy practical experience. It's a kind of hard headed sort of wisdom, a wisdom that deals with the realities of everyday life. And so this book of Sirach is filled with sayings of that sort. But at the end of the book, Syrac praises all of the great men and women of the Old Testament for their faith. Hard-headed wisdom is not enough. Realism about our life is not enough if it's not based on rock, on trust in God and hope for the future. When we pick up the Old Testament, therefore, I would suggest that in order to understand faith, you look at two aspects of the Old Testament. One are the stories of the patriarchs and the other saints and men and women of the Old Testament because in the life of everyone is this hope for the promises of God. And on the other hand, look at the wisdom literature proverbs the book of Sirach, the book of wisdom the psalms the book of job these books that are classified as wisdom literature though they don't speak so much of the kind of promises of the messiah and so on that is to come that we find elsewhere in the prophets they speak of complete confidence that God controls the world, and that no matter what we suffer, look at Job and his suffering, no matter what we suffer, God does have an answer for us, and God allows nothing to happen, not a thing to happen, except for our good. God's love does not permit us to suffer in any way unless in the end he knows in his wisdom how that will be for our good or the good of others. We don't see it, but we believe it. Now, New Testament faith has a somewhat different character. New Testament faith is certainly trust in God's promises. We look forward to heaven after our life, we look forward to the resurrection, just as the people in the Old Testament look forward to the time of the Messiah. But New Testament faith is not only trust in promises, it's confidence that God has already come, that in Jesus Christ, we already possess the Messiah The messianic age has already begun in the church and will be perfectly realized in the end. So it's a faith in not just the future, but a faith in the present, the present reality. God's transforming work has begun. That's why the Eucharist is particularly a sacrament of love But first of all, it's a sacrament of faith because in the Eucharist, Christ is physically bodily present to us. He is here with us. He is in our tabernacles. He is on our altar. He is present with us. That is Eucharistic faith. Of course, the sacrament of baptism is also a sacrament of faith because it's a beginning. A rebirth, sometimes people make fun of our Protestant brethren who talk about being reborn, born again. But we are born again in baptism. The new life has begun in us, and our faith must not just look forward to the future, but it must be a faith also in the present. God is already at work in our life. Therefore, the understanding that some people have a faith in which faith is fundamentally just trust in God is not adequate. Or sometimes they confuse faith with hope. But faith is something a little different than that. It's joined to trust. It's joined to hope. But it is something more than that. Faith is a kind of knowing, a kind of seeing, a kind of vision. Of course, we don't actually see God with our physical eye and we don't even experience him directly with our mind or our soul. And yet, because in faith, we hear the word of God And mysterious as it is, we accept the Word of God. Our mind is enlightened. Faith is light. In the Gospel of St. John, there's a constant comparison of light and darkness. And the Gospel is again and again said to be light. Not physical light, but spiritual light that enlightens the mind. It enables us to understand and know God in a way that we could never know him by our own power. I think it's very important to meditate on that fact. Today, often we hear people talk about a faith experience and they talk about religious experience. Well, I think that there's a truth in that, but we need to be careful about what we're saying there. By experience, we usually mean something in our senses that I see it or hear it or feel it, or something in our emotions that I feel sad or I feel happy, or that I really understand and see this for myself. And we're in a culture which is very much, I come from the state of Missouri, and it's the, the state, as you know, show me. And we live in a show me culture. Unless we see it, we touch it, we feel it, we experience it, we understand it, we don't accept it. And we're taught in our schools that you've got to think for yourself. Don't believe what other people say. Don't trust in authorities. They're often wrong. Look what happened in Germany when people trusted too much in Hitler. Look what happened in Russia when they trusted too much in Stalin. We should be skeptical. We should think for ourselves. Unless we see it ourselves, unless we understand it ourselves unless it makes sense to us, don't accept it. Well, you know there's truth in that. We ought to think for ourselves, And there are a lot of people who claim to be our guides and our authorities who are not by any means trustworthy. We shouldn't be credulous. We shouldn't be taken in by people who claim to know and who don't know or trying to manipulate us and fool us. There is plenty of that in the world. We have to be careful of the devil, who is very deceitful and who seems to speak the truth and to give us light when in fact it's all illusion. But nevertheless, it is necessary in everybody's life that they have faith. Without faith, we cannot live. If you trust no one, if you will learn from nobody, if you only know except what you know yourself, you don't know very much. We're social beings. We live in society. We have to trust people in order to live. And if we have to trust people who are trustworthy, people who have shown that they ought to be trusted, we also have to trust God. He is the absolutely trustworthy one. The psalmist says, God is true and every man a liar. God alone is truth. And ultimately our life must rest on God's truth and not on what I experience because my experience is very limited and not on what I know or understand because my reasoning is very faulty and I fool myself many times. If we are ever going to rest on rock, we have to rest on God. Faith then is something in our intellect, our mind. It's a light. It shows us the truth by the light of God. Another psalm says, by your light, we see light. It's by the truth of God that we are able to recognize other truth. And unless we have the truth of God, everything else is going to be a shadow and a delusion. We need therefore in prayer to turn to God and ask him to enlighten our mind so that we can distinguish between what is true and what is false. He will do that. He made us, he gave us our minds. He wants us to know the truth. He will show us the way to find out what is really true from what is an illusion. Now, how does he do that? In the 19th century, there was a lot of discussion about that among Christians. How do we know that it is God who is speaking to us? People said, well, I'm ready to believe God, but my problem is I don't know when God speaks to me. And if I don't know that it's God speaking, how do I know that I'm not fooled? In this world where there are so many false voices, how true that is. At that time, the bishops met at Vatican I, just as in our time, they met at Vatican II. And at Vatican I, that was one of the chief questions to be asked. How can we be sure that it is God who is speaking to us in the scriptures, in the Christian tradition, in the teaching of the Catholic Church? And the answer they gave is the answer which is provided in the scriptures themselves. It said God has made known his revelation to us by signs and prophecies. Jesus Christ never asked anybody to believe things just because he said so. He went around and he said things that were pretty hard for the Jews to believe. They were different in many ways than what they had been taught. They were shocked by this. And who was he anyway, this man from Nazareth, this carpenter's son? Who was he to be believed? He worked miracles. He gave prophecies. And through those signs, people knew that God must be speaking in him, as they had recognized the true prophets in the past. We can't see that it is God speaking to us. We can only know through signs. And those signs have to be sufficient. They have to be clear, solid, otherwise, we may be fooled. On the other hand, we can't ask for too much. You know, Jesus worked many miracles, but the Pharisees came to him and said, work another one. If you work another one, we will believe. And when they said that, he refused to work any more miracles for them. We have to be content with the signs God gives us, but we have to look for those signs. And when we see them, we have to believe. We can't ask God to demonstrate Himself. We can't put Him to the test. We can't do experiments. We have to ask God to show us, and when He shows us, we have to be ready to accept. Now, even in our times, there are miracles, and there are prophecies that are fulfilled. If you read the account of the miracles at Lourdes, you will know that there have been many miracles performed at Lourdes. They have been tested by the medical profession, which has declared that medicine cannot explain these things. And they have happened at the time that the blessed sacrament was carried around or where people came to pray through the intercession of Our Lady. There was the miracle of Fatima And there was the prophecy, you know, of Fatima that Russia would be converted in our time against all predictions of our columnists and our political pundits. All of a sudden we see communism overthrown. Now it hasn't been perfectly fulfilled and yet it undoubtedly is a sign to us that God is still at work. Yet those signs may not satisfy some people. And Vatican I said, and this has been repeated now in the catechism that has followed Vatican II, and it is in Vatican II, that there is one sign that is always there that is accessible to everyone, that is a miracle and a prophecy. And that is the existence of of the Catholic Church The Catholic Church by its holiness its unity its endurance through the ages from the time of the apostles its constant vitality and mission is a manifest work of God I'm a convert myself when I was in my 20s I became a Catholic I was raised in a Protestant family, but they didn't go to church. I was never baptized. When I went to the University of Chicago, an institution which was very secularist, very modern, very up to date, I had all around me those things that lead people to scoff at Christianity. And yet through the grace of God, it became apparent to me that the Catholic Church is a sign of the work of God. And that I had to believe, and if I didn't believe, I would be going against the truth. And you ask the people you know who are converts, and you will see in their experience that fundamentally what brought them to the church was perhaps The example of some good Catholic, it's often that way, that the good Christian is the best witness. But that would not have been enough. Simply to see one good person doesn't prove that the Christian faith is true or that the Catholic faith is true. That person led to look at the Catholic Church, to become acquainted with it, to read about it and study it then one sees that this can only be the work of a wise and good God. Not that the Catholic Church doesn't have its faults, of course, it's made up of saints and sinners and even the saints have their faults. There are many scandals in the church and Jesus prophesied there would be scandals. But far greater than the scandals is the reality of the Holy Catholic Church. And that is the sign that is available to everyone that shows us that we're not fools, we're not credulous, we're not being unreasonable when we look there for trust in God. Now, it's not the church we're believing, it's God we're believing, but we're believing Him through the church and through the witness of the church. Faith, then, is something in our intelligence, but it also requires an act of the will, an act of obedience to say, well, I don't see this perfectly. I don't understand it perfectly, but my mind is a very weak thing. I see enough that I know I ought to believe. That is the Christian faith, and it comes as a gift from God. We need to pray for it, If we find our faith weak or if we don't have faith, turn to God and ask him to show you his truth and then examine the claims of the Catholic Church. Faith is something in our intelligence and it has to be reasonable. Yet it requires an act of our will because we don't see the God we believe in. We believe in him through the signs that he has given us and above all through the sign, which is His Holy Catholic Church. Now, that means that faith is not just a personal experience. It is personal, but it is also ecclesial. That is, it's sharing in the faith of a community. Jesus created a community of faith. And when we are baptized, we're not just baptized as individuals. We are baptized as members of the church. We enter into the body of Christ, which is the church. Our faith is a sharing in the church's faith, not just some personal opinion of our own, however deeply that may be felt. It is faith that saves us. When... Our Protestant brethren say that we are saved by faith alone. That's true if we understand it properly. The faith that saves us is living faith. The faith that is the work of God in us and which is joined to hope and love. A faith which does not blossom in hope and love is a dead faith. There is such a thing as dead faith. First of all, the scriptures tell us that even the devils believe. You know, God created the angels as marvelous and beautiful creatures. And he gave them the grace of faith. When they were created, they didn't see God immediately. They had to believe in him. And if they had believed, they would have received from God the vision of God. But they refused to believe. Because of their pride, they would not use the gift of faith which God had given them. They would not love God. They love themselves they committed what we call a mortal sin, the sin of turning away from God to self. Consequently, they still have faith. They still know there is a God. They see the signs of God's work, and their intelligence tells them that this must be the work of God because they are very intelligent. But their faith is dead. And so it is with a person who has been given the gift of faith and then falls into mortal sin. Once in mortal sin, the person loses their love of God. They've given up their love of God. They're loving themselves more than they do God. And consequently, their faith is no longer alive. And it can no longer save them. Nevertheless, they may still have faith. And it's important that they still have faith because that dead faith will still remind them that God has called them to eternal life and that they need to repent. And so the Catholic who is in mortal sin has turned from God and yet he knows there is a God. He knows there is forgiveness for him if he will turn back. And that's terribly important. We should therefore treasure our faith. Our faith, even when it is dead, is an important gift that can lead us back to God. When we are in the state of grace, when we have gone to confession and confessed our sins, when we have repented with true contrition, then We have living faith, a faith that will lead us on to God and is already a share in God's life. So it's true to say that we are saved by faith alone if we mean living faith. And we can't be saved without faith. And so there's a truth in the Protestant saying that we are saved by faith alone, but it must be understood as a faith that lives through love, love of God. And of course, if it's a faith that lives through love of God, it is a faith that leads us to keep God's commandments. The first epistle of St. John says that a man who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar to hate our brother is to go against the greatest of the commandments, which is to love God. And undoubtedly the scripture means love God a neighbor. Undoubtedly the scripture intends to say by that, that to go against any of the fundamental commandments of God deliberately and knowingly, cuts us off from God, because it shows that we no longer love God, but we love ourselves more than we do God. We love some other creature, rather than the creator. I think some Catholics have a picture that God is standing up there in heaven and he's made a set of rules and he says, if you break them, I have the power to send you to hell. Now, that's a very childish picture. That isn't the way it really is. God is in his heaven, all right. But what God is interested in is not showing his power or his authority. He's interested in us. He created us. We are his children. He wants us to have eternal happiness with him. And he's doing everything he can to lead us to him. His commandments are simply His guidance to us to show us the right way. In His infinite wisdom, He knows us through and through. He knows what is good for us and what is harmful for us. And like a good father, He tries to lead us on the right path. He's given us freedom because he respects his creature to whom he gave the gift of freedom. And he won't force us to love him. He only invites us to love him. You can't force somebody to love you. And so God is asking us to love him. He's even humiliated himself to ask for our love. Humiliated himself and Jesus Christ on the cross to show us how much He loves us. He's willing to die for us, to suffer and to die for us. And so He's trying to lead us to happiness with Him. And His commandments have no other purpose, no other purpose in the world. And if we go to hell, it's not because God likes to punish people. God punishes us for our sins for several reasons. The first reason is to wake us up. When we see our own shame through our sin, maybe we will appreciate what a harmful thing we have done to ourselves or to others and will repent. And so God lets us suffer the consequences of our foolishness and our evil doing. Maybe it will wake us up. Secondly, he punishes sin so that others won't do it. We need to have warning. And when we see the results in another person's life of their sins, it may wake us up, may lead us to truth. So God hopes either to convert us through our own failings or to convert us through the failings of another. And finally, God punishes sometimes in order simply to keep it clear that this is an evil thing that has happened. I've noticed lately on TV that after a heinous crime has been committed they ask people do you think so-and-so should be punished now sometimes the answers are very unchristian we see a desire for revenge for destruction of the person who's done evil but sometimes we see people who are quite Christian simply say well If that person isn't punished, then nobody will believe that there is justice. Nobody will believe there's any justice any longer. And people will go on doing all kinds of things. And so the third reason that God punishes is to keep clear in the public mind that there are standards of behavior that need to be maintained by the community and lived by, or the community will be destroyed. So God punishes not out of hatred, but out of love, as a parent does. Either to reform us by the consequences of our own sins, to warn us by the consequences of other people's sins, or finally, to maintain clearly in people's minds a difference between right and wrong and assure them that justice will be done. And so if anyone goes to hell, sometimes it's questioned whether anybody does go to hell. But we certainly know it's a real possibility that we may go to hell, a real possibility. It really can happen. And if it happens, There will be nobody to blame but ourselves, And it will not be because God wants to take revenge or delights in the sufferings of those in hell. It will be because God loves the whole human race and is trying to lead every one of us to eternal life. And without the possibility of ultimate punishment, we will not keep on the track. Hell is the consequence of the person's own sins, and essentially it consists in the fact that the person has stubbornly turned away from God and refuses God's invitation to heaven. It's not God who excludes us from heaven, it's ourselves. Faith, therefore, gives us that picture of the world. Faith shows us that there is a true path toward happiness with God, that there are terrible dangers in life, dangers that we will destroy ourselves, dangers that we will destroy others. And God has warned us ahead of time so that we will not take those fatal and self-destructive steps. Faith, therefore, has a positive aspect and a negative aspect. It shows us the way, and it warns us against the pitfalls. When we look at the commandments, the Ten Commandments, we see that the first three commandments have to do with faith. The first commandment tells us that there is only one God, and we ought to believe him. We ought to be faithful to him. The second commandment tells us that we should honor God. And we honor God by witnessing to him so that others will know him. The world can be very dark. There are people who've never had a true picture of God. What they've heard of God is He's just a myth. Or they've heard an ugly picture of God. They've heard false ideals about what life is all about. They need to know the true God. And we need to honor him. And so the command says to honor the name of God, which is just a Jewish way of saying, witness to God, manifest his glory, praise God. Tell other people about him. Tell the truth about God. And the third commandment is to keep holy the Sabbath. The meaning of that, of course, we no longer keep the seventh day in the Christian church. There are people who take that literally that we call the seventh-day Adventist and who continue to observe Saturday as the day of rest. But actually, that would be part of the old ceremonial law. And we are no longer bound to that. The third commandment has as its real meaning that is permanent and still obliges us that we must take time in our life to reflect on God, to pray to God, to know God. If we don't take that time in our life, to acknowledge God and to make acts of faith toward God, to believe in God in an explicit, definite way, our faith will fade away. Faith requires to be nourished, and it is nourished by prayer, by meditation, by worship. And so the church has established the day of resurrection, Sunday, as the day on which there is communal worship. Sometimes we hear today that not going to Mass on Sunday is no longer a serious matter. I think that's a real mistake, and it's corrected in the Catechism. We have a duty and an obligation to worship with others, not just with ourselves, to join with others because We form a community. We're going to live together forever in heaven. We have to act as a community. We have to build the bonds of community. We have to witness to other people so their faith will be strengthened. And the most important way to do it, the fundamental way, is to worship together. The Bible tells us that it is not right to miss the Christian assembly because it strengthens our faith and the faith of others. And that's why going to Mass on Sunday is a serious obligation. We are sometimes excused from it when sickness or some other necessity makes it impossible, but it is a serious obligation. It is not something light or trivial. And so those three commands are commands of faith. And They're also in the Lord's Prayer. That's why the Lord's Prayer begins by hallowing God's name, by praying that His will be done on earth, and acknowledge Him as our Father in heaven. Those first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer and the first three commandments go together. They teach us the same thing. Now there's something else in the scriptures that I have not spoken about, but which is, I think, important. If you remember from the catechism, from the old catechisms, and it's in the new catechism of the Catholic Church, besides the theological virtues—faith, hope, and charity, love—which are foundation of Christian life, there are also the cardinal virtues prudence justice temperance and fortitude where did they come from well as a matter of fact they're pagan they come from the greek philosophers they're mentioned by the stoic philosophers and they're already found in a somewhat different form in the philosophers plato and aristotle they're pagan and yet they were used by the church catechetically to teach people about the Christian life. And in the Middle Ages, they came to be known as the cardinal virtues. The word cardinal here has nothing to do with the church official in a red hat. It simply means principle or hinge virtues, like the hinge of a door. Cardo in Latin means hinge. They're the hinges on which the Christian life turns. How do those relate to faith, hope, and charity? Well, the catechisms don't usually tell us. And what I'm about to say is really my own bit of theology, but I'm going to try to show that it's well-founded in Scripture. When we look at the Old Testament, one of the main themes which we see is the theme of wisdom. Wisdom is constantly praised in the Old Testament, and it's personified as a woman. Wisdom is a beautiful woman, a mother who instructs and teaches her children. Contrasted to her is a prostitute, and this prostitute is called Lady Folly, foolishness. And so we have these two women, the woman who is wisdom and the woman who is foolishness, the wise mother and the foolish mother, the one who teaches us the way of life, the one who teaches us the way of death. Wisdom, then, in the New Testament becomes faith. Our faith is wisdom. It is the wisdom of God, which we share through faith. And so when we read in the Old Testament about wisdom, I think we should translate that, perhaps with a little nuance or a little difference, but we can translate it faith. And it's no accident that in Christian art, faith is often also symbolized by a beautiful woman, the woman of faith. In the Dominican church in the city of Rome, very old church. It goes back far older than the Dominican order to the fourth century of Santa Sabina. The church of Santa Sabina has in it a mosaic which shows two women. One stands for the Old Testament and one stands for the New Testament. Those two women are the two versions of faith. The wisdom of the Old Testament the faith of the New Testament. And I think by speaking of faith as wisdom, we will understand it better. Now that wisdom of the Old Testament is faith, but it's especially faith as faith is practical, as faith guides our life. And that is what is meant by the Greek notion, the Greek and Roman notion of prudence. Prudence is wisdom about our decisions. Faith shows us the goal. Prudence shows us the way to the goal. It's wisdom that makes us think about what we are doing and ask ourselves, will this lead me to my goal or will it lead me away from my goal? That is prudence. So we can correlate those two things. There is faith, which is a theological virtue, and there is prudence, which is the moral virtue, and which helps faith, assists faith, on the practical side. It deals with those aspects of faith that we find in the commandments and that help us to use faith to guide our life step by step. The Christian, therefore, bases life on the rock of faith and the gift of prudence which is given to him, the virtue of prudence, enables him to be thoughtful, wise, reasonable about making choices in life, choices that will lead him forward.